welcome to this week's Insights Podcast. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, we had an absolutely excellent conversation today with the economist Richard Sayan on the topic of fiscal equalization. In my opinion, this is probably the best tutorial I've ever heard on the subject of fiscal equalization, and listeners will walk away learning something they've never heard before. And I think that's one of the great things that we're trying to do here on this podcast. Exactly. And it's a really timely uh, topic, uh, given uh, some of the rhetoric coming out of the Western provinces, particularly uh, the province of Alberta, who, is com- who are complaining about equalization and, and feeling that they're paying too much into this program. Uh, what people uh, need to understand about equalization and that is that equalization are funded by individual Canadian taxpayers. And every taxpayer in Canada pays exactly the same federal rates for income tax. The, you know, the benefit that Alberta has is that they have a lot of high paying jobs, <laughs> more so proportionally than any province in Canada. So they're very wealthy individually. And, and, but it's not the province of Alberta who are funding equalization, it's their citizens. And, and by the way, citizens in Atlantic Canada pay exactly the same rates and contribute to equalization in the same manner. That's number one. The second thing is, is that equalization is enshrined in our constitution. It was enshrined in, in uh, 1982, I believe. Uh, you know, we've been using it longer than that, but it is a constitutional right. And the attempt uh, uh, of, of this program is to provide equal access to a standard of, of, of uh, service for all Canadians. And that does not mean the best, the best standard of service. There are provinces that uh, outside Atlantic Canada that enjoy higher standards of services, even though we get equalization in the three maritime provinces, which is the other point that people need to understand that it's only the maritime provinces that receive equalization, not Newfoundland and Labrador due to their oil um, economy. So, you know, very interesting, insightful conversation. Richard does a great job explaining it uh, in a way that people understand. And I think it's very helpful, especially given the controversy around this current topic. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I just would reiterate that tax rates in our region are actually higher. We pay higher rates of sales tax. There's no sales tax at all. Provincial sales tax in Alberta and the rate in Saskatchewan is considerably lower. Uh, so, and even income tax rates here for middle and higher income earners are higher here than they are in Alberta. So, yeah, so the, the, the typical resident here pays, uh, pays more taxes than other, other provinces. Uh, and I think, you know, that that's one of the benefits of living in a country like Canada. The idea should be that we all have sort of roughly equivalent access to public services and the quality of public services from one end of the country. That's what sets us apart from uh from uh, from a lot of other countries in the world so and and as you say richard uh, does a great job of um of summarizing that for us i just want to make a point about the um you know the taxes that we pay i, I recently did a, a column on um on the fact that we pay the highest taxes uh in the country it was a result of the lack of economic growth and population growth that led to uh to the higher rates of taxes here not only that, but we, we begin, we pay taxes at an earlier level than anywhere else in the country. So as an example, Nova Scotia has the lowest exemption level at a little over $8,000 before you, you know, begin to pay taxes. In Alberta, it's 20000 you know, so we pay taxes, generally speaking, earlier. We pay uh, higher taxes uh, uh, at an earlier level. And that's all due to the fact that, you know, we've had a really long run of underperforming economic uh, circumstances and, and stagnant population growth. And, and so the good news is that we're out on the other side. And, and it also, by the way, provides an opportunity uh, for our provincial governments to start to think about how we can have a more competitive tax regime to attract capital investment and talent uh, for the kinds of jobs that we need in this region. That, and that's a whole other topic. We should take this one on as well because people need to understand you know, how far behind we are uh, on the tax uh, side of things. Makes a lot of sense. I think people will come away from this this uh, podcast, I think with a pretty clear sense that there's a lot of optimism out there right now. And, and uh, this idea of us being a have not 
region. I think that that image is being shed. It's being it's being broken even as we speak with all the people flowing in and the economic growth and population growth that we've seen. So without any further ado, here is our conversation with Richard Sayan on the subject of fiscal equalization. Richard, thanks for joining us this morning on the Insights podcast. Thank you. Good morning, David. Good morning, Don. So uh, before we get into the, the topic of the day here, we wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Can you give us a quick biography, uh, where you were born, educated, your career path? You actually have a quite an interesting career path through Ottawa and then back into New Brunswick. So why don't you give us a little thumbnail sketch? Well, you asked me where I was born and a lot of people uh, at times ask me what, why, where's my name from, Sayan. It's actually from Quebec City. I was born in uh Levy, Quebec, but uh, my mother is a Como from Valcomo, and uh, we moved back to uh, New Brunswick when I was five and spent uh, my childhood in uh, Tracadie and Valcomo, and uh, was always interested in economics and uh, the issues of uh, first the fisheries because I'm from a small fishing community, and uh, did uh, my undergrad at the University of Moncton in political science and economics, then moved to do my economics in Montreal, and then Spent 15 years in Ottawa in uh, various public policy circles, including uh, the Privy Council Office, Finance, and Transport Canada. And I considered uh, Industry Canada to be my, my mothership, if you want. So I would always come back to Industry Canada, worked on a lot of files, uh, including uh, uh, regional development, innovation, uh, R&D, and uh, foreign investment review. Before I left uh, Ottawa in 2011, I was a director general responsible for uh, investment review in Canada, including for uh, issues of national security. So that was quite interesting. Uh, and then in 2011, moved back to New Brunswick, spent a couple of years as a VP of uh, administration at the University of Moncton. And then uh, further stint as the director of uh, the Donagie Savoie Institute, doing research on public policy, uh, mostly in New Brunswick, but on issues that pertain to all of Atlantic Canada. Uh, wrote uh, three books, including one with you, uh, David, on shale gas. Uh, but I guess uh, my two other books were on, um, on uh, the fiscal situation in New Brunswick and the economy more broadly. And uh, one also on uh, called a tale of two countries, where I was looking at the potential implications of uh, Atlantic Canada as much faster aging than the rest of Canada, and what it would mean um, uh, for uh, uh, the Canadian Federation. Um, and and then in 2017, I I've, I started flying on my own, if you want, and I've been an, econ an economist and public policy consultant since. Um, I've um, I've uh, also dabbled into uh, being a, a columnist of sorts. Uh, uh, I've put it on pause recently because I've been too busy with uh, with my teaching and invest in Moncton and and my consulting practice. I'm working on the issues of the day. One of which is obviously what you're familiar with, David, which is housing, which is has come at us as a as a, in fact uh, you know not a complete surprise, but a uh, a, a very fast became uh, a huge priority. And uh, I, I heard that uh, you guys were working on a book. I hope I'm not stealing any punch, your punch here, by the, and that this is, is known. But I'm also thinking myself of uh, writing one right now on what I call New Brunswick's uh, Great Transformation. I think we're going through a major time of of transformation in this province. And, and, and we need a, uh, I'd like to document that transformation and start looking at what could be, uh, a, let's call it a manifesto for a prosperous and inclusive province for the remainder of the decade. So I, I think this kind of work needs to be done and uh, be probably focusing on New Brunswick and and it would be kind of like a 10th anniversary uh, revision of Over the Cliff with a question mark because you the idea of Over the Cliff with a question mark was to at the time try to get people to take the issue of uh, the fiscal crisis we're in back down seriously. Uh, and I think now is, is the time to revisit, in part doing a mea culpa on, on the over the cliff storyline because I've underestimated dramatically the, uh, the, the, uh, the potential of immigration to transform the entire province and the entire region actually. So that's what I've been busy with uh, recently, yeah. 
Well, Richard, uh, we're we're kindred spirits, as they would say, um, all working, I think, on the same sort of uh, agenda. But today, we really wanted to focus in on equalization. Um, this is a topic that few Canadians understand, and 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 I have to admit, including myself, I know some, but not enough. You're going to help explain equalization to our audience. And, and you know, there's a it's a it's a controversial topic for many people, obviously, especially people out west. Um, and um, so, let's start with what what is equalization? When was it put in place? And and what was its primary purpose? Yeah, well, in fact, if you don't mind, I'd like to step back to uh, Confederation when talking about equalization, because I tend to view the issue of equalization following a threefold typology. The first one of which is equalization as an outcome. Uh, you know, just as an outcome of fiscal federalism, the fact that Ottawa taxes Canadians and then spends money. And then you have equalization as a principle, uh, the idea of equalization, which is enshrined in the Constitution since 1982. And then you have the equalization program, which is a subset of the broader issue of equalization. The equalization program has been there since 1957. But I would say that the equalization outcomes in Canada, they date back to Confederation because uh, back then, uh, Ottawa and the provinces recognized that they were not providing enough fiscal levers to provinces, and we had a, a massive vertical fiscal imbalance. So Ottawa had way more taxing powers than uh, the provinces, but the provinces had more spending needs. So Ottawa provided fixed subsidies, which at the time were per capita on a per capita basis, but it what was capped in terms of population. So it meant that actually New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, the two first uh, maritime provinces, to Atlantic provinces to join Confederation, were receiving considerably more than Ottawa, uh, than Ontario and Quebec. So there was already an equalization outcome enshrined, if you want, in, in those fiscal subsidies. And then as time went on, back then, you know, the, the role of government was minimal. We were in an era of laissez-faire. But as we went, uh, went on and after the war, uh, then that's when equalization really kicked into high gear in terms of the outcomes. Uh, remember that until the 1930s or World War II, uh, laissez-faire was still ruling, but Keynes came forward and explained that uh, we needed to become way more interventionist. And when we had the World War, as they say that uh, the peace aims were war weapons, we were not going back to the era of the Great Depression, we needed more intervention. And Ottawa uh, actually centralized, and the provinces agreed, to centralize fiscal powers considerably um, in the context of the war. And after the war, you had what was called tax rental agreements. And those tax rental agreements meant that Ottawa was levying most, if not all, of the private, the personal and corporate income taxes, and then redistributing it to uh, the provinces. And there was a big element of equal, implicit equalization in that because it was not redistributing on the basis of how much it received from each province. So that's where the big issue of equalization started, like we started equalizing considerably. Uh, it was implicit, but it was in, in line with the values of the time, which was an interventionist government and a, uh, a very egalitarian society in terms of the values. Equalization came forward in 1957 as a result of what you could call some sort of a crisis of fiscal federalism because the big provinces did not want to renew the tax sharing agreement. So you had to come up with a new formula, uh, and that's when they came forward with equalization in 1957. And in 1957, the issue of equalization was the, the program they came forward with is largely resembles the one that we have today. Didn't change all that much. The idea was to bring poorer provinces to a level of, of revenues that was not equal to the richer provinces, but equal to a standard. Okay, over the years, the standard has changed very often, mostly out of pragmatism and the, the situation related to Ontario becoming a recipient, which was changing things all the time. But that's why we have to make a big distinction between the principle of equalization and the practice of equalization, because the principle as enshrined in the Constitution in 1982 is the idea that um, that we need to provide sufficient revenues to provinces so they can pro provide reasonably comparable services at reasonably comparable levels of taxation. So there's never been, in the principle of equalization, an idea that provinces have to have comparable revenues. It was the issue of having sufficient revenues. 
But that's what the equalization program does. It focuses on providing provinces with, let's say, comparable revenues, or at least the poor provinces being brought up to a national standard. And there are other ways of doing equalization. If you look at Australia, Australia is the picture-perfect uh, 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 representation of needs-based equalization. They take into account the fact that provinces have different, uh, over there in states, that have different spending needs and also different revenue capacities. So that's that's one of the big differences, uh, and we've always kept in Canada a uh, a revenue-oriented uh, equalization program. And the idea, the details are complex, but the idea is very simple: is to bring the amount of money that's available to half-not provinces or the poorer provinces to a level that is commensurate with a definition of the national standard. Currently, to make it simple, it's the average of the fiscal capacity of the ten provinces in five major tax fields. So personal income tax, uh, corporate income tax, resource revenues, uh, sales taxes, and property taxes. Now, there are an inordinate amount of subsets in those five groups, but that's the idea of equalization per se. But again, uh, I, I like to, to, and I'm gonna stop there afterwards and wait for questions, but equalization is much broader than that if you look at it as an outcome. Uh, right now, uh, no one is complaining about the fact that uh, when it comes to assistance to uh, seniors, that there's tw twice the amount of good money going to the Maritimes than to Alberta, because we have seniors uh, since the, uh, I'd say 19, uh, I think it was the amendments to the Constitution was in the 50s and to allow Ottawa to enter the field of pensions. And ever since Ottawa now has the, the big uh, the responsibility for pensions, it's not treating Canadians differently, which means that there's an inordinate amount of money flowing into our regions that is not flowing commensurately in Alberta, which is the youngest province along with Saskatchewan. And that, in my view, and, and I'll stop there, I call it the silver gold that's flowing through the Maritimes economic arteries. Uh, in economics, I like to think about what are the independent variables driving our growth recently. And I would tell you that right now, what's driving the Maritimes and planet, uh, Newfoundland will always have to be careful because of the price of oil. But frankly, what's driving the maritime economy these days in terms of the independent variable is mostly uh, inordinate amounts of money flowing from flowing in from Ottawa in the form of pensions, OES, GIS, and also some private pensions. Uh, one of the big issues today <clears throat> is a, a misconception that uh, is happening in, in terms of how equalization works, especially for people living in Alberta and Saskatchewan. You know, they make the claim that um, they're paying too much into equalization and, and not getting any benefit. Can you talk to that point? Because I think uh, it's not the provincial governments that are funding this, right? No, it's not the provincial governments, but the fundamental uh, claim is is accurate in the sense that uh, Albertans, for every dollar uh, they uh, put into the Canadian Federation, they get a little over 50 cents. And in uh, Atlantic Canada, we get about two bucks. So uh, it is true that it's not the province's funding uh, equalization. It's a, it's a regular spending item coming from the federal budget. So the, the general... Uh, general revenue fund. Um, but uh, the point that is being made by Albertans is one about, you know, uh, the extent of uh, redistribution that Ottawa should be carrying out. And this is something that we've seen ever since the election of Harper. Uh, this, uh, with Harper, we've, at least with Harper, but Trudeau hasn't changed the, the directions very much. We've seen the center of gravity of, auto, of of Canada moving west progressively, and therefore issues about redistribution becoming somewhat more salient. Um, but you're right, it's not provinces uh, paying into equalization, it's it's the taxpayers. Okay, but Richard, just to, to dig a little bit deeper into that, do, do Albertans pay higher federal tax rates? No, 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 no. Do Saskatchewan, people in Saskatchewan pay higher tax rates in order to pay for Atlantic Canada services? Absolutely not. And they pay, in Alberta at least, lower taxes on balance. And that's the, that's right. the pleasure of being rich. You don't which, have to pay as much. Right. And which province has the highest sales tax in the country? I would say it's, uh, I would say it's Quebec marginally. 
Okay, but Atlantic Canada is fifteen percent federal. And, yeah. and what's the what's the provincial sales tax rate in Alberta? It's zero. Yeah. So the, I guess the question that sort of grinds Don and my gears a bit is this idea that they're overpaying in those provinces to to so that so that Atlantic Canadians can have uh, can take their money and pay it on gold plated services. But we'll get through that. We got more questions on that moving forward. I wanted to ask you a, a simple question: Which provinces fall below below the line uh, and are required to receive equalization? Well, these days it's uh, Quebec and uh, the uh, Manitoba and the Maritime provinces. So there are five recipient provinces. Uh, Ontario apparently next year if uh, will be getting uh, a, a modest amount, and this Ontario has been in and out recently. Uh, but the traditional half provinces have been Alberta, British Columbia, and uh, Ontario, Saskatchewan for ever since, you know, uh, for, for quite a while now has been a half province, but historically it was not. When it was mostly reliant on agricultural products, it was, it was a half not province. So uh, to go to, to go in, in terms of what are the traditional have not provinces, it's it's the it's the Maritimes, Quebec, and uh, Manitoba, and uh, historically, of course, uh, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, but it managed to uh, exit equalization thanks to its uh, mostly oil deposits. Maybe you want to just explain a little bit more about those, uh, why Newfoundland and Labrador do no longer receive equalization because of their natural resources, because I think that's an important issue. Well, uh, natural resources are obviously a major source of, of, of revenue, and uh, the equalization formula allows for uh, the, the, the provinces to determine what's the better treatment under equalization, whether you include all your natural resources revenues or only 50%. Uh, but in the end, uh, Newfoundland is now uh, a, a precarious in a precarious position fiscally uh, because it has uh, it has suffered from what I call the wealth effect. When when people, when not me, but economists call the wealth effect, is that when you get rich, you spend more. But uh, Newfoundland and Labrador is essentially a highly leveraged bet on the price of a single commodity, which is oil. So with oil fluctuating, uh, the this province's fiscal fortunes change dramatically. Because if you escalate your cost base when times are great. Uh, it's very much harder to uh, de-escalate when times are not that great. So these days, I, I, I tend to view Newfoundland as having been given one last final kick at the can to get its finances in order uh, before uh, oil becomes less relevant to our lives. So it's been given a lifeline. Remember that effectively at the outset of the pandemic, Newfoundland and Labrador was bankrupt. It wrote to Trudeau and said, we're we're not going to be able to, draw, uh, to get the money from... Uh, from uh, financial markets and uh, Trudeau bailed them out uh, and the Bank of Canada uh, for a short while. And then all of a sudden, the miracle of uh, volatility and oil prices uh, saved them. But uh, but fundamentally, Newfoundland and Labrador is now a half province for how long? We don't know. But uh, it, it, I've never seen, as far as I can recall, uh, any province that went from have not to have uh, uh, on anything else than natural resources. You know, Saskatchewan is the same story, you know, potash, oil, and agricultural products. Uh, so in the Maritimes, uh, we can talk about that later, but I don't see us weaning ourselves out of equalization anytime soon, unless uh, we figure we find uh, very uh, lucrative natural resources, uh, commodities, products in the years ahead. One of the things that uh, that I think is important to note about Newfoundland and Labrador is that when Danny Williams was premier, and we've talked about this in the past on the podcast, you know, um, he doubled the size of government when oil was, uh, you know, flowing and, and, and coming in, um, you know, in, in big amounts. Um, uh, but the problem that Newfoundland has, and you alluded to it, is that they have the highest debt per capita in the country. They really still have no means of paying that off. Um, you know, it, 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 there's a reckoning coming in Newfoundland that people still don't understand. They had the big uh, study uh, not that long ago to, you know, to try to figure out what to do with it. But I don't see much evidence, frankly, of them 
making any progress. And then they still they still have a big population issue, bigger than anywhere around in, in Atlantic Canada, slower to grow their population, much older. Uh, you know, they've got a, that's a whole different topic. Let's not go there, but that's a whole different topic. I want to I want to wonder if you can give us a sense of how important uh, the equalization program is to pro, uh, provincial government funding, um, especially for the three maritime provinces. Well, yeah, uh, in absolute terms, Quebec is by far the biggest recipient of equalization. But when it comes to the share that equalization occupies in our budgets, the rule of thumb is around a fifth. Um, we get, uh, not sorry, uh, yeah, around, uh, around one fifth, a little more than that. Uh, depending on the years, depending on the province. So it is it is major. Like federal transfers for a province such as Nova Scotia, and I'm more familiar with New Brunswick, but we're now at around 39 to 40%, and about half, a bit over half of that is uh, equalization. So it's it's very substantial. Um, and uh, frankly, um, this is something we could talk about uh, later, if you want later on, but we're now in a what I would call a Goldilocks situation when it comes to money coming in from Ottawa, because ultimately uh, the amount of equalization we received in, and the amount of federal transfers for health, the Canada social transfer is tied to our population. And the irony, not the irony, but the fantastic thing these days is that we're the fastest growing region in the country. Who would have thought? Well, there we are, and that means that you know, no, not only do you get way more money flowing into your coffers in terms of your own source tax receipts, but at the same time, you're in the Goldilocks position of seeing robust, very robust growth in federal transfers, and that explains to a large extent why, fiscally speaking, we're doing much better than uh, than barely a few years ago. It's because our population has exploded dramatically. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess a question we want to ask is, uh, has equalization worked? Uh, you know, do uh, all Canadians now receive reasonably comparable levels of public services at reasonably comparable levels of taxation? Well, let's start with the reasonably comparable level of taxation. It's obvious that we have provinces that are taxed way more. Uh, the fiscal burden in the Maritimes is considerably higher than out west. So at issue is what's the definition of reasonable. Uh, and uh, in terms of the services, um, I would say here that um, it, it really depends on what types of services you're talking about. Uh, and, and I would say I was interested in understanding, you know, what a needs-based equalization would look like in Canada if we, we went forward with that. And when I revised the literature, I, I realized that it might not be all that helpful for a place such as the Maritimes. You know, we tend to think that we're all, we're older as a population and we're, we're, our ranks, we're not aging faster, but our ranks of seniors are swelling more because we have more baby boomers in our population. Uh, but if most of the economists that I read that were more serious on the topic of equalization made me realize that uh, when it comes to needs-based equalization, you can't only look at one variable that advantages you and say, well, we need more because we're older and aging faster. I used to say that it was a solution, that we needed needs-based equalization. The problem with, with that is that when you're looking at our, the way that we spend, the salaries we pay our public servants uh, are mostly tied to uh, what's going on nationally. Whereas what it should be like, it should be tied to what's going on within the private sector in your own province, which means that if you adjusted for that factor in your cost base, uh, then you'd end up, according to the estimates that I was reading, or probably losing out on equalization if you moved on a needs-based needs base, uh, system. So it's kind of, you know, we can't do much about this, but the way that... Uh, uh, public sector uh, collective bargaining dynamics uh, are set up, uh, uh, show that there tends to be uh, more rents included in the wages of public servants in poorer provinces than in uh, richer ones. I'm not saying that bureaucrats are paid more. I'm saying that the, uh, the, the at least historically, I can't vouch for the numbers today. It'd be interesting to run the calculations, but that's these are the intricacies of equalization, you know, about saying, is equalization about right? Does equalization uh, hinder our, our growth or, or not? And I would say 
If you look at the historical evidence, the reason why the Maritimes caught up with much, did a lot of its catching up with the rest of the country is human capital accumulation. And human capital accumulation is inextricably tied with uh, equalization funding and the ability to provide uh, good uh, educational services. So unnatural resources, there's evidence that it was uh, it was acting in a way that it could stifle certain uh, extractive industries and the new formula tries to take that into account. But in terms of the equalization do its work, well, just the, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, when you're looking at convergence in Canada, uh, the maritime provinces have caught up considerably with the rest of the country, particularly if you look at the situation compared to the 50s or the 60s. So if you're asking me whether equalization works, I'd say yes, very well. Yeah, so in this book that Don and I are writing, I'm actually writing the chapter now uh, on uh, equalization and on federal transfers and how that's impacted the overall GDP and income in the region. So I concur with that. And on the federal government employee thing, uh, I know several federal government employees that were offered jobs in Ottawa and turned them down because the economics didn't make sense. Because as you said, the wage levels are more or less national, but the cost structure in Ottawa for many, particularly housing, was higher than here. Yeah. Just to be clear, my point was about uh, provincial public servants. Although they're paid less, uh, the argument that was made in the paper is that there's still a bigger gap between public and private in uh, poorer provinces than in a place like Ontario or, uh, right. or British Columbia. Yeah. Um, um, and, and that is, you know, uh, governments in, in provincial governments in, in, in Canada are mostly uh, machines for doling out salaries, you know, because we provide services and salaries become by far the most important component uh, of yeah. spending. So that's that's the reason for uh, this this reason why equalization um, moving to a needs based equalization system. I'm I'm not screaming that from the top of my lungs anymore. <laughs> I've yeah. learned that it might not be necessarily serving us very well. Yeah, and the rural urban issue would also impact that, right? Because we have a much higher share of our population in rural areas, and that would have implications on your cost base. Yeah, but even that, uh, again, uh, is uh, it depends on how you define rurality. In New Brunswick, much of our rurality is still relatively close to a, a center. Newfoundland, obviously, might be a different situation because I tend to view Newfoundland as being comprised of St. John's and the rest of the, 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 the particularly outside the island, as essentially displaying the characteristics of a territory. And when it comes to territorial uh, financing, there's a recognition of the much higher cost of providing services in remote areas. I want to come back to your comment around the Goldilocks situation, because one of the things we're hearing is that the population in our region is growing strongly now, particularly in the Maritimes. The real GDP is back to growth, although it's certainly not back to the historical pre-2008 levels. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's back up to one and a half, uh, I think closer to 2% last year, or if you equalize yeah. out over the pandemic. Yet equalization payments, as you indicated, are actually growing strongly. And, and uh, yeah. um, Nova Scotia actually receiving the most. So I guess the question is, maybe you could just reconfirm for the listener, mm -hmm. why is equalization going up even as our economy and population is growing? Because our gaps in prosperity with other regions are not uh, narrowing. That's a short answer. Uh, the, the way that you want to keep equalization high and, uh, and, and grow the economy is to uh, add factors of production rather than make them more uh, productive, ironically. <laughs> but uh, the issue here is that um, uh, we're growing our population, but we're not growing our GDP per capita any faster than the rest of the country. I suspect that we're growing it slower. Uh, I was looking at the economy and, and one of the chapters I plan on writing in the book, if I move forward, I call it uh, the economy or growth uh, getting high on pot and people. Uh, because if you look at the industries that have been growing since 2017 or so, the marijuana industry went from being marginal or non-existent to uh, a half a billion dollar industry in this in this province in New Brunswick. And then the rest is people. If you look at what's the GD or sources of GDP growth these days, more than 100% is construction. More than 100%. If you look at everything related to construction, and that is directly related to a population aging. And, and, and when I look at that, I try to see, and I'm always concerned about this. I know I'm, I might be veering off topic a bit, but I'm concerned about this because uh, at some point you need to figure out what's your independent variable driving your growth. 
in the Mekena years, we had abundant supply of labor, well-educated, bilingual, and we connected to the Canadian slash North American marketplace. And that was the demand for the excess labor that we had back then. Now what we have is a lot of people retiring and then you have people coming in to pick up the jobs and you have, and but the, the driver is pension money flowing into the province's economic arteries. So my, when I'm looking at that, my biggest concern, and I know it's not being discussed all that much, but uh, I'm, I'm really concerned about the Dutch disease in the sense that our, grow, our economy is, 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 is turning inwards. And that's fine for as long. We'll be riding that wave for the remainder of the decade. But after that, as Warren Buffett famously said, it's when the tide uh, goes down that we see who was swimming naked. And I'm just <laughs> concerned that, that our region might be swimming. Uh, we yeah. might find out that our region was swimming naked. I'm not as catastrophist or alarmist as uh, alarming as I may have been in the past. I think we'll figure it out. And I don't see, yeah. I don't see uh, 10 years from now, I don't see us going over a cliff. I just see us with an engine that is no longer uh, uh, because remember the older baby boomers will be well into their uh, 80s in uh, 10 years from now which means mortality rates in this province are going to shoot up to the roof and the last baby boomer will be 65 which means that replacement worker needs will be going down so we'll have to refocus our industrial base and move towards a more export driven economy but in the interim we will have been getting high on yeah. pot and people and <laughs> the I, pot I, part the pot part, I'm kidding. I think I don't. I don't anticipate the pot industry to boom as much, but I don't know about that. So we had we had Herb Emery on talking about exports. So Don and I are laser focused on the importance of growing our export sectors for exactly the reasons you just you just described. Uh, yeah, pot has added more to the New Brunswick economy, either GDP in recent years, than healthcare. So again, and so it's a weird sort of, but I, don't, I agree with you. I think the growth project projections there are not high and the, the, the cannabis facility, I believe in Northern New Brunswick is actually uh, shrinking. Yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, so that's, that's a good uh, response there. Uh, but I did also want to come back and talk about these unintended consequ consequences. So mm -hmm. critics are saying that having this equalization backstop is the reason why we don't have any interest in developing our oil and gas resources. It's why Quebec, you know, is snubbing their noses mm -hmm. at pipelines. It's why if you go back 15 years, New Brunswickers had no interest in uranium mining, even though we use, use, use nuclear energy in the province. Uh, critics say we spend a lot more money on public services, these so-called gold-plated public services, although I can tell you I've been trying to reach my doctor for three weeks and I can't even get a hold of her, so I'm not sure that's gold-plated. But I guess yeah. the question for you, though, is, is there merit to that idea that equalization actually allows Atlantic Canada to snub their nose at oil and gas development, at, at you know, aquaculture development off Shelburne, uh, in Nova Scotia, at forestry development in Nova Scotia, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that complaint or that argument? Well, on the natural resources side, particularly big extractive industries, I'm not all that sure about aquaculture, but uh, oil, it's, it's, it was the, was a big issue, of, of course, historically, and, and, and we needed to figure out a way so as to provide certain incentives. I would say that based on the current uh, way that equalization is, uh, is built, that it's it provides less of a disincentive, but 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 um, the uh, the whole idea that maritimers do not want to develop their economy, to me, is a bit of a red herring. I I I think you're you're right to say, David, that uh, an older population uh, is perhaps uh, less conducive for uh, uh, certain projects that could be viewed as uh, as uh, negative in terms of uh, incidence of quality of life. Uh, and, and when you're young and you need to earn a living from market income, you, you may have a different attitude than, than when you're older. But that's not related to equalization as much as it's related to having an older population. And, and when, when you're living on a, let's call it, a, I use the term in purely economic terms, when you're living on an economic rent, you have a different attitude than when you have to, to uh, eke out your way. Uh, so, but I wouldn't say that, these, that equalization is the main culprit these days. I would say that uh, it's a, a broader set of issues, including uh, perhaps rightly on many counts, uh, environmental concerns, which need to be discussed. So uh, shale gas, to me, there's no issues. It's not related to equalization, in my view, that, that at least it's 
if you ask, I, I don't see the government wanting to sit on shale gas assets because of equalization. So uh, it's much broader, in my view, that was the way I'd look at it. But just to clarify that, because you mentioned it, I think, earlier, but for the listener, if New Brunswick developed a large shale gas industry with hundreds of millions of dollars in royalty revenues, that would put a dent in our equalization payment, right? Is that what you're saying? Or it should? It, it, it would, but it, not necessarily a one for one, which means that there would still be an incentive for the province to, to move forward with it. Um, and and as with equalization, the, the funny part and the part that's complicated is that it's never just about ourselves. It's always about what's happening elsewhere in the economy. And when prices for, uh, for instance, in, in uh, about 10 years ago, when you still have relatively high commodity prices and an Ontario, man, Ontario manufacturing sector is reeling from North American shocks and, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, you tend to have a widening of, of disparities, and uh, sometimes it's not related at all to what's going on in your own province. It's what's re- what's going on elsewhere. And there's also that cap in overall equalization payments that was put forward by Harper so as to minimize the impact on, on, the, on, the, on the purse strength. So for a while, when we had to make room for Ontario to get some equalization payments, uh, then it was uh, we were our equalization was growing very slowly, but that's not because we were getting richer relative to the rest of the country. It's just because we had to make room for Ontario. By the way, historically, every time uh, that equalization has threatened the fiscal purse in Ottawa, there's always been a response. You know, so there, it's not a, an open check, although it may feel that way when you're reading the equalization program. The, the I would say, and I've been reading a lot about the history of equalization, it's a history of pragmatism, fiscally speaking, and about Ottawa being very pragmatic. And Ontario, believe it or not, for the longest while, not anymore. Now Ontario's in the business of counting the dollars it sends to Ottawa and how much it gets back, and that's its litmus test. Ontario has ceased to see itself as some sort of a godfather to all of Canada. But historically, Ontario was ashamed of getting equalization and was okay with changing equalization so that it would not lose its personal status or its its own self-perception as a rich province. And now it likes the gravy just like the rest of us. Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, before I turn it back to Don, I'm, I don't want to hog the conversation here, but I have one more question here. I wanted to ask you about this idea of getting off equalization. You hear that a lot. If you go all the way back to Sean Graham in 2006, he had a plan, a self-sufficiency agenda that actually had a goal of weaning the region or the province off equalization by 2026. Of course, this year we're going to get about $2.6 billion, so I don't think we're going to hit that target by 2026. But I guess the question is, is that, a, is that even a false argument unless we were to get big oil and gas revenues like Newfoundland and Labrador? And I guess the question for you is, even if we get this million population by 2040 that the premier wants here in New Brunswick and 2 million in Nova Scotia by 2060, all this population growth, unless we have other high value sort of natural resources based growth, what are there any conditions that would need to be in place for this region to actually be able to self-fund provincial budgets? Well, the, the, the short uh, answer is that the history of the economic history, the history of economic geography in this country uh, suggests that so far the only province, the only time that provinces can wean themselves off the equalization status has been through natural resources, so large resource rents. And that speaks to uh, something I've argued about in the past is that when it comes to economic geography, the die were cast at the turn of the 20th century in the sense that neither Halifax nor at the time St. John uh, turned into a Montreal or Toronto. And then there was a hierarchy in the urban geography. And it hasn't changed since, uh, except that Ontario is Toronto is now king. Uh, but uh, my my impl- the implication of this to me is that, and I hate to say this, and, and, and I don't mean to be defeatist or alarming, but if in the last time I checked, it may have changed, but I was looking at the top uh, 10 industries in Halifax, and I think that nine of them were government-related. 
and if you go uh, in, in in New Brunswick, uh, there's, there's there's not much difference, uh, and and there's nothing. As I said, to me, I never saw equalization as something we shouldn't be proud of. It's always, to me, been a reflection of the uh, forces at play in terms of economic geography in this country. And uh, that um, and if you look at Saskatchewan, remove the natural resources sector. And I don't think that they have the ability or the good prospects, any more, any better prospects than we do of, of, of undoing the forces of economic geography that are, that are at play in this, in, this, in this country. Now, look at a place like Calgary. It's talking about turning itself into a Houston. Whether this will happen, I don't know. But let's remember that Calgary has, what, 1.2 million people, probably a bit more. I don't know. So so to me, uh, it's a reflection of the forces of economic geography. And uh, if the past is any uh, any indicator indication of the future, I, I don't think we should hold on to old, old, to, you know, hope for that. I don't think we should. It's a realistic hope. And in fact, the current trends that we're seeing is that we will actually be getting more dependent on Ottawa overall. Think about this, like just in, in, in New Brunswick over the last 10 years, we went from 120,000 uh, recipients of OAS to 180 something. OK, and there's going to be more. We're probably going to crack 200 in, in, in the next few years. That's all money coming in from Ottawa. And as a result, our population is growing extremely fast, which means even more federal transfers. So if anything, and I, I'm not a betting man when it comes to that, but if anything, the risk is on the upside that uh, as a share of our of our overall uh, revenues, uh, that it could get even higher. Uh, and some people will uh, not like that uh, outside uh, the Maritimes. And you know what? I'm of two minds when I'm looking at this because... You know, we are in this Goldilocks situation, fiscally speaking, and true, not, nothing that we did of our own. It's just uh, the reality of aging in this in, in in this in this in this region. And to me, these are the forces of fiscal federalism that are at work, and uh, we shouldn't be too proud of that because it can invite a reaction from. Uh, other provinces, richer provinces, and get more uh, referendums that are completely empty but still politically salient uh, in this country on equalization. Uh, Richard, the maritime provinces uh, continue to be characterized by many in central and western Canada as a have-not region, and they, uh, you know, point to equalization as proof of um, our, our status. This is offensive to most people in Atlantic Canada or in this region. Um, you know, it's funny that, you know, Quebec and Manitoba, who are chronic receivers of uh, equalization, rarely get tagged as have-not regions. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, and this is one of the things that I'm personally, um, you know, think is a, is a a hangover that we need to we need to find a way out of. So I'm interested in your thoughts about, you know, why what can we do to shed that sort of have not status, you know, and get get out of that thinking for the rest of the country. Well, I I don't know if if it's it's something that we can do, uh, but I think that what's happening right now. Uh, is instilling uh, dynamism that we haven't seen in a long while, uh, and our region is going to is changing before our very eyes, in, including on the aspect of diversity, and is becoming discovered. You know, like a lot of what's driving our growth these days is cheaper housing, not cheap, cheaper housing <laughs> relative to the rest of the country. But it's also people discovering the area and uh, realizing that we're not uh, backwards, uh, and and. Uh, Hopefully the media will stop putting a fishing boat uh, every time there's an election that they can come mm -hmm. and you know, put in different, but, but it's a cliche. Uh, but I would, from, from, from my experience, having been here now more than 10 years, I would say that there's a lot of dynamism uh, in, in this, in this region. There's a lot of entrepreneurship. There's a lot of unsung success stories uh, and uh, that we could do a better job uh, at promoting ourselves. Uh, but we're doing quite well. Uh, all I guess I'm saying is that 
this does not take away the forces of gravity, uh, economic gravity in terms of our economic geography. When you think about a place that's such as Toronto, you know, we, we're seeing some migration out of Ontario, but, you know, it's an elephant. And when the elephant, you're in bed with an elephant, if it moves a bit and can squeeze you quite hard, and that's what we're seeing these days with Ontarians moving here. But it, it still remains that there's more than a Moncton coming into Toronto every year. You know, and think about the ability of that economic dynamo to absorb all of that uh, extra labor force and, and generate wealth. It just goes to show how strong uh, the uh, forces of and, and typically uh, the, these forces tend to multiply themselves over time. You know, Toronto keeps getting stronger and stronger. Uh, and but it doesn't mean that the rest of the country is getting weaker. It just means that these are the forces that are at play. And and honestly, when I look at the level of human capital in this region, uh, it's better than it's ever been, probably. And uh, we're we're making a lot of progress. And I think that's what's happening to the Maritimes these days may help shed that image. Uh, because I don't like, I, uh, when I wrote uh, Tale of Two Countries, I deliberately never used the word have not. I use the expression poorer or less well off, but poorer doesn't mean poor. It just it just means that relative to another average. And, and on top of that, let's be honest here. I mean, uh, uh, when your fortunes, I'm not talking about Toronto here, but when your fortune is dependent on natural resources, when you're on top of the world, you think that you've done something particularly well and that the other ones only need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and to do the same. But when the price of oil goes down, suddenly the attitudes change quite dramatically. So to me, it's always been about understanding that living in a country such as Canada, we're blessed to have a country such as Canada that takes care of each other to an extent that you're not going to find in the United States. But uh, and to an extent that you're given the diversity of our economic geography, uh, I would say to an extent that is remarkable, the amount of, uh, of, of, of solidarity instituted through the tax and spend activities of Ottawa. So I want to come back and ask you a little bit more about federal transfers. So I take your point that we are getting more equalization and we're getting more of what you call silver gold. The money coming in from uh, OAS and GIS and, and I guess CPP, even though that's uh, funded from, through uh, through self-funded. But I wanted to ask you about economic development transfers. Mm-hmm. So if you look at uh, Stats Canada tracks subsidies to industries, as you know, and um, if you look at those numbers, uh, New Brunswick ranks last among the 10 provinces between 2010 and 2019 in terms of subsidies provided by government to industry. Um, uh, Nova Scotia is below Ontario. Um, so I guess the question for you, if you look at things like the $13 billion pr- provided to uh, Volkswagen in Ontario, and Stellantis, I understand, is going to receive a similar package. Uh, so that's 20-some billion right there to two companies in Ontario. Um, and if you look at the research and development dollars that flow from the federal government, uh, you know, you lived in Ottawa. It's it's massive uh, in Ontario and, and to a lesser extent Quebec compared to a place like uh, certainly New Brunswick. There's there's um, higher amounts of R&D in Nova Scotia. So if you just look at the money that flows into economic development, things that are specifically meant to drive economic development, would you agree that those numbers are higher in a place like Ontario? And isn't that a kind of equalization? Instead of stabilizing provincial government budgets, they're subsidizing industry. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, we all know Donald Savoy's argument that uh, the pact in the federation is that uh, uh, Ottawa has been doling out subsidies to individuals while uh, across the country, while it's been focused on the serious business of developing the economy uh, in southern Ontario and to a certain extent Montreal. Um, I tend to view this uh, to agree with Donald that it's it's you can't disagree with the data and you can't disagree with uh, the idea that when it comes to uh, economic development that much of the subsidies have been targeted at um, at those large centers. Um, now we should celebrate some of the things that happen to us that are good, such as shipbuilding in Halifax. Um, I consider it to a very much lower extent, but still a form of an auto pack for us. I mean, think about the supplier, uh, the supply chain that this is no doubt fed. 
Uh, I haven't done the analysis, but I can just assume that you know you need a lot of materials and that a lot of businesses are probably geared to that 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 that, that industry. Um, but overall, uh, having been in Ottawa for a long while, I still can see the other end of the argument, which is that uh, there are some businesses uh, where uh, we need to scale up the capacity. And uh, right now, the great EV transition or the great decarbonization transition is one that does play out in Ontario. And you have to decide whether you want to pay to play or uh, have the uh, big uh Tesla Gigafactory or Volkswagen factory somewhere in Tennessee or in, in Kentucky. And you know that, David, is that it's a business of pay to play. Now, I think, and I'm going to be controversial here, but I don't care, I guess. Um, there's still an inordinate amount amount of money that's flowing through a coal, and I, I'm not entirely sure that we're making good use of all that money. Uh, so we, you know, Donald is coming out with a book on victims, but um, we shouldn't always consider ourselves victims here we we should be hold ourselves to greater account when it comes to our own efforts and uh what we have control over here in here in moncton and with the coa and also ask ourselves if in terms of economic development that we got our priorities right you know for the longest while opportunities new brunswick was happy with uh, announcing that it was creating jobs and i was telling them that we're actually adding fuel to the fire because priority was not to create jobs unless they're high value added. You're actually making the problem worse if, uh, if you're not figuring out ways to get people here because you're competing with the other industry that's not subsidized. So so I, th- I don't I think it wouldn't hurt if we started having a big conversation around economic development in, in, in the area and particularly focusing on the productivity issue more broadly uh, and to see what we can do with our own money. Uh, I'm not saying that it's, I'm not arguing whether it's fair or unfair, the amount of money that's flowing from Ottawa, but I would say that we also have, uh, we, we need to look at our our own backyard too, and I'm not entirely sure we're doing it. I think uh, sometimes in, in the Maritimes, I don't know, it's because it's we're a smaller place, but we don't ask the tough questions to ourselves all that much. My view, I, I, I'm not an expert in the topic, uh, David, but my view is that uh, we could do be doing probably better. Uh, David, maybe you want to ask the EI question next. We're, uh, we only have a few questions left and we're running out of time a bit. Okay. Um, yeah, so while we've got you here, I just wanted to ask you, we are seeing after the pandemic, we're starting to see sort of a s- slow but st- fairly significant decline in the share of people claiming EI. Uh, mm-hmm. still relatively high. I'm not saying it's it's not an issue, but I guess while I've got you here, I know you've studied this issue. You've looked at rural economies around the region. Do you think this labor market shortage, this trend in labor markets, this aging demographic, do you think we're finally starting to see a cultural shift away from seasonal EI dependence in rural Atlantic Canada, or is this just a blip? I don't. I, I think that the data will show, uh, suggest a cultural shift, if you will. But I'm not, I'm not going to call it cultural, but a, a shift. But it's just because the rest of the economy is growing, if uh, faster. If you look at uh, uh, e, e, uh, unemployment, the unemployment rate for the whole province uh, last year was, I believe, seven point three percent. But if you remove the uh, literal, you know, all around in keep St. John, but remove everything else. And you get an unemployment rate of 5.8%. And nationally, it's 5.3%. And that's the lowest level it has been since probably the 60s. So we're at we're at full employment in New Brunswick. Now, with EI, by definition, you're going to inflate the unemployment rate because you can't get EI if you're not saying that you're looking for work. But whether people are actually looking for work is a different story, obviously. Now, the, 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 oh, the thing that I've always been concerned about with EI is what, if not EI, then what? The issue here is that we have to admit that it's, just a, it's an income supplement, and uh, you can call it a lifestyle, but to me is that people, and Homo economicus explains EI, okay? It, it, can, it's, it explains it. But the question is, this is where fiscal federalism comes into play. You have an Ottawa program for, that fulfills something that is fundamentally income supplementation 
or provincial jurisdiction. So as long as we don't have a reason, realistic conversation about a guaranteed income in, in this basic income in, in Canada, and if we don't have an interesting conversation about how do you support individuals in, in rural areas uh, to make the transition towards a different type of industrial structure, understanding that seasonal activity is extremely productive and a big contributor to our GDP, you're going to get these people saying fundamentally raising the red flag all the time. And I would say probably rightly so, because we're, we're not uh, advancing a bold, proactive agenda. We're just threatening them. And, and my view of that is that every time you threaten someone's livelihood, the only thing that gets tires burned in Trackety uh, at the Johnson Bridge is uh, the black hole, okay? The, the black hole of unemployment. And I understand them. It's, it's just to them, it's it's that, that reality that uh, that's the way the system works right now. Is it okay? We all know that uh, that, that seasonal EI, uh, EI introduces distortions. At issue to me is how do you deal with it going forward? And, and how do we have a conversation about that in the country, understanding that it's a, not a big issue for mu much of the country? So I think we need bold, innovative thinking uh, and, and that communities could respond more favorably if they felt that they're not going to be just left out to go on welfare or uh, because there's always going to be a need for seasonal, uh, seasonal employment. These days, it's being filled out by temporary foreign workers, um, whether I don't know how long you know, uh, this, this, this EI, seasonal EI will, will last. But again, my view is that um, it's ripe for change, but it won't happen in my view. Un because, and, and I, I teach, teach that in political science to my students is that when you're looking at pressure groups, uh, interest groups, one of the key factors that, 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 um, that uh, bolden or bolster effectiveness is geographical concentration. And when you're looking at seasonal activity, you get the attention, uh, they can get the attention of uh, MLAs and MPs extremely fast because uh, it's the disproportionate importance to them. And I think it's reflected in the politics federally. And, and, and the only way to change this is by making sure that we have a vision for the future and not simply dismantling something. Yeah, the final question, uh, Richard. I mean, obviously there are some lots of great things going on in, in the region. Um, you're, you're writing a book on the transformation of what's happening in New Brunswick. David and I are trying to work on a book uh, of what's going on in the region overall uh, on a similar vein. Um, um, population growth has really been the big change I think everybody would agree with that now, but but overall, thinking ahead, you know, how uh, how optimistic are you? I guess uh, looking down the road, especially if you could look, you know, maybe ten ten years or or so down the road, what do you think the future holds for our region? Well, for the remainder of this decade, I think that we could see more of the same, probably not at the level we've seen recently. This is too much. I don't think we can sustain three percent population growth without having without having uh, dividing the society between housing haves and housing have-nots, having polarization and all of that. I don't think we can sustain it. But I think what we can do 1.5 probably relatively easily uh, in the years ahead. Um, with regards to what's going on beyond 2030, uh, again, I, I think in terms of what's the independent variable and what's the dependent variable. Mm -hmm. And I can't, for, if you look at Canada's history, the need for immigrants we, we tend to see the country as a country of immigration, and it's true. But every time we didn't need uh, immigrants, every time we had we were in excess uh, in terms of supply of labor, we shut our borders. Okay, we did that during the Great Depression, and after the Great Western Settlement, it slowed down considerably. So the historically uh, immigration has been a result of an abundance of economic opportunities. Whether immigration itself can turn be turned into an independent variable, uh, I'm not one of who's going to say now that it's impossible because I've learned over the years that the <laughs> predictions, as Yogi Berra once said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. But I would say that in 10 years from now, your, late, your last baby boomer, in 2030, your last baby boomer is retiring. 
your older boomers are unfortunately leaving us in, in larger numbers and that therefore our challenge in that situation will be to sustain our population up north in New Brunswick and in the rural areas forget about maintaining the population when you have 37 35% of your population that's baby boomers there's going to be inevitably some sort of of adjustment going on in the 2030s so i view the current decade as the great decade of ramping up you know, we need to ramp up our hospital system. We need to ramp up our nursing home system. We need to ramp up our housing stock because we're welcoming a lot of newcomers to pick up the jobs that are being made vacant. But after that, it will be trying to sustain an existing level under a context of an aging population. So whether we'll be able to sustain the type of, uh, of population flows that we're seeing right now, I'm personally skeptical. And if you look at the experience of the past, I think there are grounds to be skeptical, but I'm certainly not close to the idea that to a certain extent, immigration could be turned into an, into an independent variable. But whether that's going to happen, historically, it hasn't happened all that much. Uh, and immigrants will tend to come for the opportunities that are currently available and not those that can come in three to five years once we have figured out that we, we're swimming naked and we need to turn towards the export industries. So, so again, not apocalyptic about the next decade, but certainly thinking that uh, beyond that, we're going to need to uh, to adjust to a new reality. And that's the reason why when I talk about the great transformation, which I'm working on it, I'm not, we'll see if it turns into a book, but uh, I use the, the term the great transformation because I'm borrowing it from an author called Carl Polanyi, which is my favorite economic thinker. Uh, and uh, it's 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 evocative of something that we've never had before. Think about it. The forever, almost forever, at least the modern history of our region, a priority has been to create job for the abundant labor that we had, and now things are turned on its head, and it's fantastic what we're going through. The concern I have is that the runway is not eternal. It's driven first and foremost by demographics, in my view, and the thing with demographics is that it's predictable to a certain extent. And so in my view, uh, we are benefiting from good uh, tailwinds right now. We have an opportunity to right the ship, as they say. Uh, but uh, that opportunity is not going to be there forever. And my biggest concern is, as I said earlier on, that in 10 years from now, we find out that we were swimming naked. Richard? Thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.